Let me pray as we get into the sermon. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege and responsibility to preach this morning. Lord, you know that this sermon has weighed on my heart these last couple of weeks. Uh, In preparing it, it's been difficult. And uh, so, Father, I just pray that your spirit would guide me now, that uh, you would give me the right words to say, the right tone with which to speak. And God, as we address a a very controversial and touchy subject, I pray that you would give us an extra measure of grace, that your love and compassion and justice would prevail. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so imagine in your mind you are on a road trip. You are driving, and you stop, you notice your gas is low, so you stop to grab some gas and a few snacks for the road. As you are inside the gas station, you buy what you need to buy, and on your way out, you notice uh, the all-too-familiar missing child flyer. You've all seen these before in grocery stores and other places, and you see this one, you know that likely you're probably not going to be able to do anything, but you skim it, you know, just because in the rare event that something happens, you're informed. You see that it's a little boy, he's six years old, He's been missing for about three days. He was taken from a park near his home while he was playing with his mother. And that, you notice, is about 100 miles away from where you are. He's got brown hair, brown eyes, and the picture is one of his school pictures, so he's really cute and he looks happy in the photo. And as you kind of just think about it for a second, you feel on a very, very small level some sense of the loss for him, some sense of despair for his family. But there's not, I mean, there's not much you can do. You don't know anything. And so you get in your car and you kind of move on and you just keep driving and you kind of just forget about it, not because you're mean, but just because that's how it goes. And you're listening to music and podcasts and things. And then a few hours later, you stop again at a rest stop. And so you get out to stretch your legs, go use the restroom, just kind of get some fresh air and get ready to start driving again. And on your way back to your vehicle, you notice in the back seat of another car a little brown-haired, brown-eyed boy. You make eye contact with him, and he quickly looks down and away. And you don't know for sure, but he looks familiar, and you're suspicious that might be the boy from the flyer. But there's a man in the passenger seat of the car. His hand's hanging out the window. He's smoking a cigarette. He looks like he doesn't really want visitors to the car. And so you don't want to draw attention to yourself or to the boy, but you are able to nonchalantly walk past the vehicle on the way back to your own car. It's confirmed that is the boy. You recognize, without a doubt, that's him, and you notice his hands are zip-tied in his lap. At that moment, you're faced with a decision. What do you do? Do you confront the man in the car? Do you, do you try to rescue the boy right then and there? Do you go back to your own car and call 911 and maybe follow, get the license plate number? Do you forget about it entirely, try to forget what you saw and just get in the car and keep driving? All of us say that we would do something. In your mind, as you're imagining this, you would do something, right? Why? Why do we all say that? Why do we all think that? Because we know that it would be wrong to do nothing, 
To ignore what we just saw would be to participate in the injustice that's happening against this child, right? And so we, even if we don't put our own lives at risk in confronting the man in the car, we would do something, surely. Or at least we think we would. The question I'm I'm wondering is when we imagine ourselves to be the good Samaritan here, do we imagine correctly? We expect of ourselves to fight for justice in a given situation and to stand up for what's right when it's presented to us. And the truth is, there will be many moments in your life where, mom- where scenarios like this, maybe not this exact one, but scenarios like it play out, where you are faced with the decision to stand up for what's right and to fight for justice or to do nothing. And it's in those moments, not in hypothetical scenarios, that will reveal your true character. It's those moments that will really test our convictions. Preparing this sermon has been one of those tests for me. This is the first time I've spoken publicly on this issue, and, and I have, it's been difficult for me to prepare and to think about what to say. And my prayer is that hearing this sermon would lead to one of those tests of conviction for you as well. Because today our church is observing the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. If you don't know what that is, what it means is our church uh, takes today to recognize the value and dignity of every human life. It's the day we speak about the injustice of abortion. Because we believe that every life, even life that is unplanned, even life that is inconvenient, disabled, um, even life that is the product of a tragedy, is valuable, is precious, and is worth fighting for and worth standing up for. And so we have to take today to celebrate, to celebrate is not the right word, to observe it. Because every single individual, every person in this room is made in the image of God. The theological term for this is the imago Dei, the image of God. You have never met someone who does not have that in them no matter how messed up they may be. Every one of us has the image of God and because of that has uh, intrinsic dignity and value. To intentionally kill a human being is a legally innocent human being is an act of injustice. It's an injustice similar to human trafficking, abuse, rape, or racism, and others. These injustices dehumanize, they violate the imago Dei of the victim and of the perpetrator. And so it is the responsibility of the Christian to stand up against these sorts of injustices. We as a people, and we as Christians especially, must speak against it with courage, conviction, and a lot of compassion. Indifference for us is not an option. Before we get started, though, before I get into the text and we start talking through the points, I want to recognize something. This is not a hypothetical scenario. Uh, The statistics are, I think it's one in every three women in America now have had an abortion. So I am under no illusion that because you're in church this morning, this doesn't affect you. Um, I'm very aware that there are women in here, and I don't know personal stories, but I'm very aware Some of you have had abortions. Some of you have encouraged or coerced a woman to have an abortion. And so this is not something that we're talking about theoretically for people out there. 
This is an issue that touches us. And so I, I want to recognize that, and I want to recognize and, and say that I, I am aware that abortion leaves incredibly deep wounds. And it is not my intention to pour salt in those wounds this morning. I am not here to condemn you. Our church is not here to condemn you. What Jesus bought with his blood and offers you is forgiveness, healing, and compassion to deal with whatever shame, guilt, self-hatred, regret that you might be carrying. And, and so this morning, as you're, as you're going to hear it talked about, um, I just want to say I'm aware of that, and I'm going to do the best that I can to speak with conviction, biblical conviction on the issue. But at the same time, I hope, I hope you see that there's compassion as well. So, let's get going. Let's open up the Bible to Isaiah 58. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the pew in front of you or on your device. I'm sure you could find one online. But we're going to be in Isaiah 58 and uh, two other passages this morning. And what we're going to do is look at three passages and then kind of distill two points from them. In Isaiah 58, we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. Now, to set up the context a little bit before we actually read them, in Isaiah 58, um, the people of Israel, God's nation, his people, are frustrated with God. You ever been there? They're frustrated with God because it doesn't feel like he's listening. They've prayed, they have fasted, they say that they're seeking God and he doesn't seem to be answering. Um, These ones aren't on the screen, but it's in verse 3. God is talking, but he's saying, he's repeating the question that the Israelites have asked. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So their question is, we fasted, we've humbled ourselves. Why aren't you paying attention to us? And if you read verses 4 and 5, even if you just skim them right now, what you'll see is what they call fasting and humbling themselves is in fact Um, not at all in line with the values that God would have for his people. They're not truly seeking him. Everything they're doing is in pretense. And so God levies an accusation against them. And then, starting in verse 6, he explicitly says, if you're going to fast, if you're going to pursue me, this is what it should look like. Okay? If you truly want to humble yourself and fast and have me listen to you and, and pay attention, then this is what I've chosen. Isaiah 58, 6 through 9, God says, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of Yahweh will be your rear guard. Then you will call and Yahweh will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. So I want to be careful. Our church believes in uh, the doctrine of what's called justification by faith alone. That means that God accepts us based on our faith in Jesus Christ on his death on the cross and his resurrection. That is a core doctrine, and we would, we would die for that one. That being said, we cannot escape what this text clearly says. 
that if we are going to follow God, if we are going to give our lives to him, if we are going to live as the people of God, he expects us to pursue justice. How we react to social issues is an act of worship. That is an explanation of our faith in visible ways. How we respond to the refugee crisis today is an extension or ought to be of our faith. How we respond to social injustices is related to our relationship with God. It's not the basis for it, but it's related. So, that's one verse. The next one, there's another one like it, is in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is a popular verse. Maybe uh, you've memorized it or heard it before. And again, the context is a person wants to follow Yahweh, the one true God. They want to worship him. And so God lays out explicitly, and and a lot of people take this to be a summary, um, a distillation of a lot of the teaching of the Old Testament and really of the Bible as a whole. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Again, act justly. To love mercy, that means we're not going to shove people's mistakes in their faces. We're not going to try to make people feel bad about themselves for what they've done. But we are going to pursue justice. But we're going to do it in a merciful sort of way. And in doing that, we walk humbly with our God. The last one is in Proverbs verses, uh, chapter 24, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. So you see there that we are called to be rescuers. We are called to stand in the gap of someone who's being oppressed and we are to protect them against the oppressor. We have to stand up for those who are in imminent danger. And if we make excuses for why we sit on the bench and do nothing while innocent people suffer, look at verse 12. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he's done? Now God is not going to hold us accountable to fixing all the evil in the world. That would be completely unrealistic. But we have to do something. And if we make excuses that because we can't do everything, we'll do nothing, that's not going to fly. These are a small sampling of passages related to the God's expectation of his people to pursue justice. And I could give you much more. What I wanted you to see was that there's a consistent theme throughout scripture that if we are going to be a follower of Yahweh, that means we're going to be a pursuer of justice and a protector of the innocent. Because, and I could show you more verses on this, the foundation for that is that God himself is the ultimate just judge. He is the ultimate pursuer of justice. And he is the ultimate merciful protector and defender of the orphan and the widow. And so when we act this way, really all we're doing is reflecting the character of the God who we worship. And so I'm wanting us to see as a foundation, before we talk about abortion specifically, as a foundation, Christians ought to be people of justice ought to be people who care about the fact that there's poverty and hunger 
and racism and abuse. We, we should care about that. And we should do something about it to our ability. I mean, we can't, like I said, we can't fix everything. But all of us can do something. Now, specifically, abortion is the intentional killing of a human baby in the womb. There are rare, but not inconsequential, instances where it really does present a credible threat to the life of the mother. Those are worth talking about, but I'm just going to say I don't have time here and now to address those. I'm going to give some resources at the end, and hopefully that'll give you a springboard of places to discuss those sorts of scenarios. But those aside, the vast majority of abortions don't apply to that situation, and they are never okay. While Christians ought to be against all forms of injustice like human trafficking, abuse, rape, racism, and more, abortion is uniquely urgent and worthy of our efforts for this reason. It is socially acceptable and wildly pervasive. Over 59 million babies have been aborted since 1973. And in 2014, which is the most recent and reliable data that we have right now, there were just under 1 million abortions in the United States. The good news is that number is a little bit lower than it was before, but that's still a lot of people. That averages to 2,613 abortions per day. The numbers are heavily weighted towards minorities and women in poverty. People of color and people with no money are the majority getting abortions. This is a pressing issue of injustice in our society and our culture today. Over 900 of those in 2014 were in Clark County. 17,000 or a little bit more than 17,000 were in Washington State. I don't have the numbers for Portland, but I am certain they're high. So if God expects his followers to be pursuers of justice and abortion the intentional killing of a human baby in the womb is the most pressing issue of injustice in our world today Then it is entirely scriptural and biblical to say that God expects us, us being Christians, to stand up for the unborn. And when I say us, I say Christians. All people ought to. There's, There's some good arguments about how abortion hurts society at large and it's in everyone's best interest, but I'm talking about us specifically as Christians. If you are not a Christian and you're here this morning, you chose a good day to come. It's a hot topic. It's not normally this heavy, okay? But we have to talk about it. Um, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, what I hope you'll see is how we believe, what we believe God wants us to do about it. And hopefully that'll give you a good picture of who God is. Christianity has a legacy of caring for children, both in and outside of the womb. Some of the earliest Christian writings from the second century onward speak against abortion. It's been around for a long time. And the early church fathers spoke against it. And there are biblical passages and you can find arguments from the Bible and the Bible speaking against it. In ancient Rome, it was common practice for Christians to rescue babies that had been abandoned to the elements. It was common, and as it is today, there are places in the world where people will leave babies in dumpsters or in sewers or in gutters or just they can't or won't take care of the child and so they leave it to die of exposure, or hopefully someone will pick it up. In ancient Rome, it was really common for Christians to pick up those babies. In fact, so common that there were rumors that began that Christians ate babies because they collected them. 
which is grotesque and completely opposite of what they were doing. Uh, in addition to that, millions, perhaps billions of children have been and are still being cared for in orphanages started by Christians around the world. Now, certainly we're not the only ones doing this, but we're a lot of them. A lot of orphanages have been started by children, adoption agencies. Um, even today, there are these things called uh, drop boxes, baby drop boxes around the world, and these started back in ancient Rome as well, and they're around today. In fact, there's this great documentary um, about a Korean pastor who's created this Dropbox in his home. And if you just Google the Dropbox film, you can learn all about it. But basically, what it is, is instead of leaving your baby to the elements and chance, you can drop your child in a um, incubated, a warm, protected from the elements box, and someone has, dead, has committed to caring for that child, either adopting it themselves or making sure that it gets into the adoption process. And so there's this pastor in Korea. For example, this is one of many uh, who every once in a while, uh, I don't remember how often it was. It was often, though. A woman would drop a baby, usually with a note explaining why she couldn't care for the child, and he would take the child in, and he's got, if you watch the documentary, it's crazy. He's got all sorts of disabled and really special needs kids in his home. And it's, um, it's pretty powerful. What I want you to see is that when you stand up for the unborn, uh, you are not alone. You join a rich legacy. A lot of people in politics and the media want to paint those of us who are pro-life as anti-choice, as against women's rights, as uh, close-minded, bigoted, not compassionate, not loving. And so it can be easy for us to think, what can I do or what should I do in the face of being seen as that? What I want you to see is that you're not the only one standing up. You're not the only one doing anything. When you choose to stand up for unprotected and uncared for children, you are joining a rich legacy over the course of thousands of years. In fact, uh, back in Exodus, one of the things that God blesses the Hebrew midwives for is for saving children from being killed. Because Pharaoh, if you read the first three chapters of Exodus, this is in there, Pharaoh ordered that all the Israelite babies be killed. And when you stand up for the unborn, you, like the midwives in Exodus, disobey the injustice of society and you care for children that deserve the right to live. But it's not just the unborn that we need to stand up for. We understand abortion is a complex issue. The children are completely worthy of our efforts, attention, prayer, and finances, but it's not just them. I think and I believe that God also expects us to help women in need. Now, of course, every woman's situation is different, but some of the common reasons that women give on exit surveys, the ones who are willing to take it, uh, for not having their child, for having an abortion, uh, is they feel too immature for a child, they don't want to be a single mother, uh, they're unable to afford a child. Uh, it's an inconvenient time in life, career, or schooling. Maybe not all of the time, but much of the time, probably most of the time, women who have abortions feel forced in the situation by their circumstances, by their family, uh, possibly by their boyfriend or husband. 
The irony is that for many women, the right to choose has put them in a situation where it feels like there is no other choice. Now, of course, that doesn't describe every single woman who's ever had an abortion, but it describes a lot of them. Abortion is just like every other sin in the sense that it promises something it cannot deliver. To women and men in the situation where they're facing a crisis pregnancy, abortion offers them an eraser. It offers them a way to undo a mistake, a a way to regain control over the situation, a, a way to forget a tragedy if that's what happened. But the truth is that abortion can't do those things. It does not erase your past. It doesn't grant any, any sort of control over this situation. It doesn't fix anything. It's, it's like a child who spills paint, and in order to clean up the paint, they grab a rag and start spreading and trying to wipe it up, and all you have at the end is a bigger mess. It doesn't erase what was done. Uh, my wife worked, uh, volunteered at two pregnancy resource centers, and uh, she showed me this really helpful diagram as we were talking about this. So I want to share it with you. Uh, it's really good. So go ahead, Richard, and bring it up. So if you've got, this is the timeline uh, from when a woman is pregnant to birth, okay? There's a nine-month or so period there. Now, uh, at the time a woman has an abortion, most of the time what she thinks will happen, go ahead, next slide, what she thinks will happen is that it will erase the whole thing. It will be in the past We can forget about it, and we can move on. That's not what abortion does. Go ahead and do the next slide. What it does is it erases the future. It changes the future, but it does nothing to the past. It will not undo the fact that a woman was pregnant. It will not undo what led up to the circumstances of the abortion. It won't undo uh, the rape, if that's what it was. It won't undo um, whatever feelings of compulsion she was under. It won't undo the pain and hurt that led her to the circumstance. Abortion will always change your future, but it will never erase the past. And what you end up with is pain and hurt from the past and from the abortion itself to deal with. As I mentioned earlier, abortion leaves deep wounds. The reason this is a touchy subject is not just because it's politics. It's because people feel really strongly about this because we all know somebody, we all are somebody who've been affected by it. The statistics are there to support it, but too often they can be abstract. We can forget that they're real people. Abortion leaves emotional and psychological wounds, most of which don't show up until about seven years after the abortion took place. So they might not even be immediately sensing it or feeling it. So what I want to show you is a music video and it's of a father, of a man who uh, paid for the abortion of his first child and it's kind of him processing in his own way what happened. And so even if you don't resonate with the music style, uh, I want you to try to listen to the lyrics and listen to how this man is processing and responding to uh, the abortion. So we should have the video. It might take a second to get started, but it'll be on. Happy birthday.
Thanks and make a wish. Please accept my apologies. Wonder what would have been. Would you have been a little angel or an angel of sin? Time boy running round, hanging with all the guys. Or a little tough boy with beautiful brown eyes. I paid for the murder before they determined the sex. Choosing our life over your life meant your death. And you never got a chance to even open your eyes. Sometimes I wonder as a fetus if you fought for your life. Would you have been a little genius in love with math? Would you have played in your school clothes and made me mad? Would you have been a little rapper like your papa the piper? Would you have made me quit smoking? By finding one of my lighters I wonder about your skin tone The shape of your nose And the way you would have laughed And talked fast and slow Think about it every year So I picked up a pen Happy birthday Love you whoever you would have been Happy birthday What I thought was a dream Make a wish Was as real as it seemed Happy birthday Why you died And other people got their own reasons for homicide Who's to say it would have worked And who's to say it wouldn't have I was young and struggling But old enough to be a dad The fear of being my father has never disappeared Ponder it frequently while I'm sipping on my beer My vision of a family was artificial and fake So when it came time to create I made a mistake Now you got a little brother Maybe it's really you Maybe you really forgave us Knowing we was confused Maybe every time that he smiles It's you proudly Knowing that your father's doing the right thing now I never tell him woman what to do with a body but if she don't love children then we can't party think about it every year so i picked up a pen happy birthday love you whoever you would have been happy birthday what i thought was a dream make a wish was as real as it seemed happy birthday To the heavens again From the ending to the ending Never got to begin Maybe one day we could meet face to face In a place without time and space Happy birthday From the heavens to the womb To the heavens again From the ending to the ending Never got to begin Maybe one day we could meet face to face In a place without time and space Happy birthday What I thought was a dream Make a wish Was as real as it seemed Happy birthday Abortion offers freedom, but it delivers shackles. It offers hope for a better future, but all too often, all it brings is guilt and shame. And I mentioned earlier that I did not intend to pour salt in wounds this morning. There are certainly men and women in this room that are feeling crushed by the weight of sin, by the weight of guilt, um, that you might be feeling like you've been carrying around your abortion for years. You might feel like it's too awful for God to forgive. You might feel too embarrassed or ashamed to tell anybody that you had one or you encouraged one. I just want to say that if you feel like you've been carrying that weight, if you feel like it's just weighing on you, Jesus offers some words to you that I, that I hope would provide some help. 
So you go ahead and bring up the slide. This is in Matthew 11. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The image here that Jesus gives is of someone walking around carrying something that has started to weigh them down, that has started to just be too much. It has created exhaustion. And he says, lay it down, and I will give you rest. I encourage you, lay your sin at the feet of Jesus. Let him forgive you. Let him heal you. You don't have to bear the weight of that shame anymore. Confess it. Let it go. Jesus died on the cross. He defeated death. He rose again, and he offers forgiveness to all of us. We've all violated the Imago Dei, whether by abortion or otherwise. We have all treated people as something less than human before. We all need his forgiveness. There are safe people in our church, our elders, myself, my wife I mentioned. Um, she agreed to put her contact info in the worship insert if you prefer to contact her confidentially. There are ministries and recovery groups that are connected with our church. There is help. You are not alone. So we see that God cares about the unborn. He cares about the women who've had abortions, the men who've encouraged them. I've talked with um, several men who've encouraged and paid for abortions, and it's not just the women it affects. It definitely affects the men as well. So, we have to do something. My question is not, what will we do? It's why aren't we doing it already? What's keeping you from getting involved into the fight is it, I know for me, this was me for a long time. It was thoughtless indifference. I had not given the issue much thought and it didn't affect me personally, at least I didn't think it did. And so I didn't, I just didn't really pay attention to it. Um, I didn't think it was that big a deal. And so I suspect that might be true for other people here as well. It might just simply be apathetic. Or maybe this was also true of me. It's fear of man. It's fear of talking about it because this is a huge issue in our society and it, and it will definitely uh, create some enemies if you go out and start um, trying to fight for life because it will be seen as fighting against the women. It will be seen as fighting against choice. You will be swimming against the tide. And so that was me. It was fear of man. It was fear of rejection. I didn't want to say anything or do anything um, because I was afraid of what people would think, especially people close to me. I've got, I've have people who are close to me who are very pro-choice, and I didn't want to disrupt that. And I still struggle with that. And so I don't know if that's it for you. Thoughtless indifference, fear of man. Um, you feel like who are we to tell other people what to do? You know, it's a valid question. I don't want to be seen as bigoted. I don't want to be seen as arrogant. I don't want to be seen as closed-minded. And so who am I to tell someone else what to do with their private life? You know, and that line of thinking works for a lot of things. Who am I to tell someone where they should buy their house? Who am I to tell someone how they should spend their money? 
It works on a lot of issues in a person's life, but it does not work when it becomes an issue of injustice. You apply that to any other injustice that violates the Imago Dei, and it will not work. I am personally against human trafficking, but who am I to say anything against someone else owning a slave? It doesn't work. No one's arguing that. I'm personally against rape, but I, I support the people, I support the right for others. Come on, right? And in your mind, you might be thinking, well, that violates another person. That's the point. There's an innocent child being killed. And so we not only have the right, we have the responsibility to speak up with compassion, with sensitivity intact. We don't, again, we're not trying to shame or be mean or we're not trying to be just jerks, but we have to stand up. We have to speak up for that life. So, I have only barely scratched the surface. My goal and my prayer in preaching this this morning was to raise the issue, offer hope for people who might be struggling this morning, and to give some next steps. If you want to get involved, and I hope you do, I pray that you do, there is in your insert six or seven different ways to read more and just get more informed to think about it a little bit more. Organizations you can contact and volunteer, but I'm going to highlight three this morning. Uh, One is a book. uh, It's called Why Pro-Life. It's a short book. Um, I'm a slow reader, and I got through it in about a week. Okay, Uh, So Why Pro-Life by Randy Alcorn. There is a table of about 60 of these in the back. Um, They're free. The church bottom um, for you to have. If nothing else, it'll get you thinking, okay? Um, it's not forcing you to decide, but it'll at least present some information for you to think about. Um, if you, if you want to get involved financially, um, there are these baby bottles on that same table back there. Uh, these support uh, an organization I'll mention in just a moment, and you can keep loose change. You put bills in here or write checks. Bring these back to the church office in the next three weeks, and we'll take these to a pregnancy clinic called Options 360. And that's the last one. That is our local. They've got one um, in Vancouver near the mall, and they've got one up in Battleground. Uh, Two pregnancy clinics that offer services to women who are in crisis pregnancies. It's called Options 360 because it helps women evaluate their options. Gives all the information about adoption, abortion, and parenting. And gives all the support and resources a woman would need if she wants to parent the child. They have um, this thing called a baby boutique where they give new clothes, car seats, education about parenting and relationships. Um, it offers pregnancy testing, ultrasounds, counseling, um, STD testing, all sorts of stuff that uh, women who are in crisis pregnancies might need. And at no charge, no insurance, no money, nothing. It's completely volunteer based and donation-based. And so that is a great organization. If you want to hop on their website, that should also be on your insert. You can see more about them. You could call and set up a tour. Um, That's a great organization to get involved with and just learn. Like I said, there's other ways on the folder, and I don't remember if this one's on there, so I'm going to mention it. Um, It's not a particular organization, but just the idea of adoption. Champion it. If a friend is going to adopt support that. Be willing to be the reference. And if they'd actually be a good parent, give a really good reference for them. Okay? Um, Support them in adopting. 
Be a part of the foster care system. Be a part of, be a part of the adoption movement, if you will. That's always been a huge part of the pro-life movement and a huge part of Christian faith as well. So um, I want to mention that one as well. So at the beginning of the sermon, you were given a hypothetical scenario where you were in a car and you noticed a child who'd been kidnapped. And the question was whether or not you would do anything now that you were faced with a decision. At the end of the sermon, I, my goal is that you are now no longer in a hypothetical situation. You have to do something. May we not forget what we saw today and simply get back in the car and move on. There are thousands of faceless, voiceless, powerless children with rights who are dying every day. We need to do something. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are in a desperate time. Innocent lives are taken by the thousands each day. And God, I ask publicly that you would bring an end to this injustice, that you would make abortion as unthinkable as slavery. And God, I pray that you would stand up and defend the weak and the powerless. God, you promised to do that, Lord, and so I ask that you would would fight for the rights of children. God, I pray for the women in this room and the men who've encouraged them, who've had abortions. God, I pray that you would give them grace. Bring them to a place of repentance and faith in you. God, I pray that you would bring full and complete healing for them. And God, I pray that you would move us to action. For those of us who have been indifferent, Lord, I pray that you would convict us and show us what we could do, what we should do. God, I pray that each person here would become involved in some way in the fight for life. Amen.